feel like we're a broken record every day marveling at how fast the coronavirus is surging in Ohio. And again, yesterday, an enormous leap in cases, and yet nobody's doing anything about it. Boggles the mind. And we will be talking about that today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Jane Cahoon, Chris Wernowski, and Laura Johnston. And I just want to say for anybody that saw the front page of The Plain Dealer today that, yes, we do know that Joe Biden is the president-elect, even though our story makes it sound like that's a question. We published a story we wrote a week ago on the front page today without updating it. Screwed up. I apologize. But we do, just trust us, we do know Joe Biden is the president-elect. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. You guys all know that Joe Biden is the president-elect, right? What? <laughs> the only thing I know is it's your birthday, so happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, oh, this wow. is a great birthday present, a front-page story. I have <laughs> and I do want to point out Seth Richardson's name is on that story. He wrote a great story. It's not his job to update it. That falls to me, and I didn't make sure it happened. So it's my screw-up. Don't uh, blame Seth. Blame me. Let's move on. Why did Mike DeWine cancel his coronavirus briefing Tuesday? Didn't we hit a staggering new record? Jane Cahoon, the records are falling in ways that I never thought we'd see. And we have very little action. So why did he cancel his briefing? Well, instead of having a briefing on Tuesday, he decided he's going to give a special address to Ohioans that's going to be broadcast statewide at 5.30 p.m. today. And uh, as you said, this announcement was made Tuesday as we hit the almost unthinkable mark of over 6,500 new cases. That That's almost a thousand more than the record that was just set on on Saturday. And, and you know, we used to be alarmed about 1,000 cases in a day. And now we're leaping by by that amount every day. It's just it's just unbelievable. And, you know, we're up to a total of more than a quarter million cases. And we have more and more people in, in hospitals and in ICUs. But anyway, DeWine is, is once again trying to give more gravity to this moment when, when everything's out of control. He, he described this as a critical stage in battling COVID-19. Um, so, so what's he going to say? You know, is he going to announce any new orders or will it be just more begging and pleading with Ohioans to do the right thing and wear masks, you know, like he did in July. That that was the last time he gave a a special address to the state. So we'll have to see. I mean, we, we talked about this last week, how DeWine has seemed more and more solemn, almost appearing defeated, although that, that doesn't match his rhetoric about, you know, knocking the virus down and, and all the sports metaphors about this being halftime and we've got to, you know, shore up the team and all that. So I'm curious what you guys think about all this, like well, if he's going to do anything bold. Well, I mean, look, I, I'm, this is Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football because he's done these things before. It's like, oh, wow, it's going to be a big moment. And then he says, please wear a mask. The The thing that I don't expect we'll see because he has shown no indication of doing it is bold movement. I mean, there, there's a, a study that came out by Nature yesterday that makes a very strong case that restaurants and bars and gyms are where the this thing is spreading in a big way. I mean, it's you can find it online and it's a really strong story. So so if you take that and because they have no earthly idea how it's spreading in Ohio because they've done nothing to figure that out, their contact tracing never did that and they still don't have data, then take that study and say, okay, that's the best we know. Restaurants and bars, shut them down. 
I get it. It's a huge employment problem. You'd have to make sure to do something with unemployment to help the people who are hurt. But it would stop the spread of the virus that is pretty clearly happening there. But I don't expect he'll do that. I think this is going to be another pull the football away and Charlie Brown goes flying in the air and says, arg, you know, I mean, it's like, yeah, what, yeah. What, you know, and we'll all say good grief on the podcast tomorrow. It, it, I if mean, if this spirals any further, they, you know, businesses are going to be hurt anyway. You know, I mean, the economy is just going to keep going down. Can, can I ask a couple of questions? Chris Ranowski. Um, has he said anything or has there been any indication that they're going to ramp up PPE production? And has, I mean, has there been any consideration at all to, you know, getting that stuff to frontline? You know, we're starting to see frontline workers again get sick and, and you're starting to hear around the country that there are shortages of PPE. Early on, there were a lot of efforts by statewide com- companies around the state to sort of, you know, to make ventilators and to make, you know, I mean, do we need that stuff again? I mean, are we still in that position where, you know, the there might be some day, economic benefit in the, doing that? Yeah. The other day, the hospital officials who appeared at the um, the briefing, the, the extra briefing that they called on Monday said that they had enough PPE. They were worried about staff. And yes, in fact, staff are getting sick, but they're saying that's because there's so much community spread. They're not getting it in the hospitals they're primarily they're getting it out in the community that's what they said so and do we have universal testing yet i mean are we at a point where every single person has affordable easy access to being tested if they suspect they have the coronavirus has the state has the state cleared that hurdle because that's a big one they've ramped it up a lot and they report all the tests and they they're growing but i don't think it's no I, do, I think anybody that wants to get a test can get a test is the it drugs cheap? is it free thing. is it you know is it free i mean that's the thing is like <laughs> like the thing is is like you know we might have access to testing but it might be expensive and and that's counterintuitive to encouraging people no to do it. i don't yeah. i don't i don't think that's the case but I, since we don't know we shouldn't we shouldn't raise that specter without finding out Laura Johnston. I was just going to say, I did look into taking a test when I had that cold. And um, as long as you have like a symptom, they were going to let me do it at CVS um, and it was going to be free with my insurance. But I'm sure, you know, that might vary where you are and what the drugstores are, how busy they are. But those are the things that we need, you know, those are the things that we really need to sort of address this. You know, there's. See, I I completely, I, I think the most important thing we need is to figure out how it's spreading. We've gone from a thousand cases to 6,500 cases and not one person in the Mike DeWine administration has a clue as to where that spread is happening. That's, that's mind boggling. Tom Izzo, the, uh, the Michigan state basketball coach got it, got tested earlier this week. And he's, he's been one of the biggest advocates of wearing masks. He said, I wear a mask all the time. I have no clue how I got it. That's frightening, right? Because if you're wearing masks regularly and you still get it, it starts to raise questions about how surrounded you are with it. Nobody's asking that. We are there. There's no study. There's no. That doesn't make sense because we always talk about the the fact that wearing a mask doesn't keep you from getting it. It reduces your ability to get it. Nope. The CDC just yesterday or this morning changed what it said, and it now says it protects you from getting it. But but what might be happening is. We all go inside, the air's dry, the virus stays in the air longer, gets circulated more. And, you know, cloth masks don't have the success rate of N95 masks of blocking mm-hmm. it. 
And so we might need to start looking at the, the strength of the masks. Maybe the, the, the cloth masks that we all sewed at the beginning of the virus aren't enough and we need to get some more professionally made masks, even if they're not in 95. The problem is we're asking these questions. No one else seems to be, especially <laughs> the people who are charged with public health policy. Well, well and that's, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, I, I, you know, I run one of the our messaging accounts, our subtext accounts, and I'm getting a lot of people that tell me who cares, like that the death rate isn't that high. We still have hospital capacity for now. The drugs are working. We're getting a vaccine. Like, let's just go on with our life. And I wonder if there really are just a lot of people that say, eh, I'm not going to get that sick. I don't really care that much. So stop talking. I just want to live my life. Can I say, like, everybody that I know who has contracted the virus has had the exact same attitude, and they've gotten it, and their attitude changes completely. <laughs> after they and so, you know, and it's a few people. And 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 so I honestly, I mean, I, not to be name-calling, it's a very, very ignorant approach to a pandemic. Like, and it's a lack of empathy. Really ignorant. And, yeah. and frankly, you know, I mean, if our leadership isn't going to tell you to do this, I we should say, you, you know, please start to limit going out. I mean, like the mayor of Cleveland said yesterday, you people should be staying home. And, and, you know, I don't think that's been amplified, but that's one of the solutions to this. And I know it's, it's tough because we're, but we're getting to the winter months anyway, we're going outside is going to suck. So well, just try I, to stay home. Stop the one food again. You know? I, I sent a note out on my uh, subtext account where I send notes about what we're working on every day yesterday. And yes, and yesterday it was, the, about Thanksgiving and that I said we canceled ours and the doctors are suggesting that's the message. 80% of the more than 100 people that got back to me all, all said, I've canceled my Thanksgiving. I'm not getting together with people. And that of the 20% that said they're still doing it, they they were doing things like not eating or they're going to meet outside and do some things. I was really heartened by that because up until then, everybody I seemed to talk to anecdotally was like, yeah, I know I shouldn't do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. The, the message does seem to be getting through. Um, Got to close this one down. We're getting time shortened. It's this week in the CLE. Has Cuyahoga County had a case before now of a jail inmate killing another jail inmate? And what do we know about this case? Chris Ranowski, I I've been here a long time. This seemed like a new thing to me. So, yeah, Adam Freese went back and sort of looked through our archives yesterday because you uh, we all sort of wondered, you know, has, has this happened before? And, um, a lot of the folks that he talked to said that they could not remember one. And he looked back about 25 years and there's no, there no case of, uh, uh, inmate on inmate death, uh, in the jail. Uh, most of the deaths are, are usually, uh, either people take their own lives or it, it's related to drugs. I mean, those are, those have been the most common instances, uh, and natural causes. But in this instance, this is, this is sort of a, an odd, and and really kind of sad case where um, an inmate who kind of has a history of attacking people within the jail, who and this is a guy who has been diagnosed with an, uh, a mental illness that county really didn't specify what it was, but but there have been other cases where he has been accused of you know charged with assault and and he was found not guilty by reason of insanity, which is you know if you if you pay attention to courts, it's not, it's not a very common thing that happens, and so. He was placed in a general population and police are saying that he attacked a much smaller inmate and basically beat him to death. And, and this is a guy, I, both of these, both of these inmates at the jail suffered from mental illnesses. And so there's some questions that we still have about 
why why this guy was in general population, why he wasn't segregated. I, I mean, I'm, our suspicion is that he probably shouldn't, uh, you know, the, the suspicion is that this was related to the fact that the coronavirus is sort of messed up where they can put people in the jail. Um, the county hasn't confirmed that yet, but that's it, our best guess is that that's the case. You know, I I have resisted calls by a lot of people to return to an elected sheriff, which come out every time the jail gets botched. And during the administration of Armand Buddhist County Executive, I mean, this place is just not working. I mean, it's if, if you have the first time an inmate has killed an inmate after all of the other scandal that has happened there, you do start to wonder, would there be better accountability if you elected the guy whose chief job was to run the jail just so that they would run the jail? I mean, to, to, to have one inmate beat another inmate to death, where are the guards? What are they doing? Well, I mean, it, it's not something that you usually do in about 10 seconds, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it's there's pros and cons to, you know, appointing a sheriff, you know, because it becomes a political position and, and you know, then some, you know, then they're more influenced. But, but at the same time, when it comes to, you know, electing somebody to do this job, you know, I mean, how much voter turnout do you get for a sheriff's election and, and, you know, what portion of the population is really selecting who does this position? So, you know, I, I, I think there's plus and minuses to, to either method of it. I mean, just as we've seen, with, well, we, you know, well, county we executives should. and, and elected, you know, I mean, it's, but- <laughs> but point out the big minus that Jerry McFall, who was the sheriff forever and ever, was as corrupt as could be and, right. you know, ended up being disgraced because he was basically enriching himself in the job. So, yes, well, the clearly there can be problems. Running a jail is not easy and running a jail in a pandemic also not easy. And and so, I, you know, I'm not excusing that away. They have a responsibility to make sure that the people who are in there are safe, get the medical care they need. And, you know, if if people need a short refresher, this county, you know, was specifically looking at running the jail as a profit center at one point. And that's, you know, when when your government starts doing stuff like that, that's where these lapses come, because you cut corners, you you minimize staff, you cut, you know, you're trimming where, you know, the, the quality of the food and health care that people were getting. I mean, there's I mean, there's lawsuits pending about this stuff. And, but but that was. Two years ago now. I mean, right. for two years, they've known there's a crisis. They've said they're getting on top of it. This is our third death this year. So we're already getting back into dangerous territory. And it's it's a homicide. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think that this administration is proving itself to be totally inept at operating a jail, despite intentions, stated intentions of doing so. It's not working. And so what do you do? And, you know, we got an ineffective county council that does nothing to try and do oversight and bring in any kind of rigor. I mean, the county council president is retiring at the end of this year and maybe we'll get somebody who actually does the job. But for now, it's not working. This is another sign it's not working. It it shouldn't take lawsuit after lawsuit and firings and, you know, death to address issues in your jails like they're. The problem has been illustrated and laid out for this county and its leadership time after time after time, and and they they continue to come up short. And so, you're right. I mean, it's it's this should be something that should be on the minds of every every person that votes for county council, every person that runs for county council, and they should be talking about it more. And they don't. And and so I feel like 
it's it's this is going to end up costing a you know things like this cost us a lot of money as taxpayers and you know it's it's sad that you know for some people we boil down a human life to that but these are people these are people that may you know you could make a very good case that should not have been in this jail to begin with because they did have mental illness i'm interested to see how this is explained away how guards did not catch this how this wasn't stopped but you know, there's a lot of this story that still needs to be reported and written out. So we'll All right. we'll have more on it, I'm sure. Well, we're more than halfway through the podcast, and we've dealt with two stories. We got to move on. It's okay. this week in the CLE. What did the Ohio Supreme Court have to say Tuesday about a school district's liability if one student bullies another? Laura Johnston, this went down, I think, the way most people would expect it to have gone down. But it's an interesting question. Right. It is not the school's fault and their immunity remains intact. The majority of the Supreme Court said that the Toledo educators in this case were immune from liability when this kindergartner punctured another student in the face with a pencil because they had no reason to know that that child posed a risk of physical harm to the other kids. In order to be held liable, the family would have had to prove that the the school district knew the other student could cause physical harm and that they consciously disregarded or were indifferent to that fact. The Supreme Court, this this went back and forth between a couple of courts, obviously, by the time it got to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court said that the teacher principal and assistant principal had all taken steps to curtail bullying. And even though there had been some kind of skirmish, like this little girl girl was pushed in a bathroom line, they they couldn't have known that later she was going to get stabbed with a pencil. Okay. I mean, there were a lot of school districts were worried about this. We had done a preview story on this case, and you could tell that a lot was riding on this. If this had gone the other way, districts were going to have to change a lot of policies and probably put a lot of money in the bank for uh, for uh, liability issues. So the, the school districts are, I'm sure, relieved today. It's this week in the CLE. Who's the next president of the Ohio Senate? And Jane Cahoon, no laughing at this next question. Can we expect any moderation of that body's far-right approach to lawmaking that might satisfy people in Ohio cities? Jane? Okay, I I got my straight face on. This is no surprise. It's been talked about for a long time that State Senator Matt Huffman, he's a Republican from Lima, that he would succeed Senate President Larry Abhoff of Medina, who is term limited. And to answer your question, it's really more of the same. He's solidly conservative. He's a backer of school vouchers. And he's one of the lawmakers who pushed back on Governor Mike DeWine's coronavirus restrictions. Back in April, he wrote a letter to DeWine during the business closures, urging him to to reopen businesses in less densely populated areas, which at that time had, had fewer cases. He was also a big proponent of reopening schools, and he was pushing a bill prohibiting public officials, including public health officials, from telling schools what to do, you know, when they could reopen. But as we know, the governor left did leave that decision to the local district. But as I said, more of the same. Speaking of more of the same, the entire leadership team of the Senate that was chosen Tuesday was white and male, which is certainly a reflection of the majority that controls that body. And on that note, I do have to add one more thing, because Personally, I, I have to say, I found this so disturbing at the time, and I and I still do. Huffman was the guy who, in 2018, made a completely crude and vulgar joke about a woman at a at a staffer's farewell party. He didn't actually say the word, but he made a clear reference to 
a four-letter word that's used to debase women. And at the time, he was talking about a female candidate for office who he apparently thought was a little too demanding. And he did end up apologizing for that, but otherwise didn't suffer any consequences any you know to his leadership position or i mean at the time it was used as an example of how both the house and senate leaders failed to confront the issue of sexual harassment so you know hopefully he's learned from that and he's he's grown up in the last 2 years so there you have it that's matt huffman so let me look for a little bit of a bright spot so he he was against dewine's coronavirus policies wrote him a letter he wasn't arguing to lock him up or no, no, him. no. He's he's not considered fringe or or anything like that. But definitely, definitely, you know, one of those rural conservatives. But for cities that are looking for some relief from gun violence and all the other social ills we have in urban centers, he's not going to be a friend. He won't be helping. No, 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 no. Okay. Well, <laughs> moving on. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why have a bunch of tourists filed federal lawsuits against Put-in-Bay police, including one that involved a traffic stop on a golf cart? Didn't really know they were doing traffic stops on golf carts in Put-in-Bay, Chris Wernowski, but this is a pretty serious series of allegations. Right. So uh, several tourists uh, filed federal lawsuits against Put-in-Bay and three of its former police officers alleging that they used excessive force uh, in separate arrests of black tourists this summer. What, yeah, and you're right. One of the cases did begin with a traffic stop of a golf cart driven by a, a, a black visitor and ended with officers pulling their weapons and using their tasers. The filing comes in the middle of an FBI investigation into the department over the handling of these arrests. Uh, the officers have left the department and interim police chief James Kimball was named like weeks after the arrest. Chief, chief Riddle remains on administrative leave. So they're their, their police chief has been on leave. Uh, they have an interim chief and three people have lost their jobs. Um, the lawsuits are pointing to uh, the officers having a lack of training. And uh, the, the officers, uh, Lieutenant Michael Russo, uh, Corporal Terry Rutledge, and Officer Dwayne Webb, um, all lacked p- probable cause in their arrests, uh, according to these lawsuits. I mean, Put-in-Bay is, is a pretty interesting place because they have a pretty small police department, but they they do handle crowds of up to 200, you know, 25,000 people. And, and that was sort of the logic that sort of Kimball gave is that our officers are young and they work in a tough environment. But I mean, these are, these are the allegations that are contained in these lawsuits that John Coniglia wrote about are, you know, it's, it's kind of staggering to see the overlap and the fact that, you know, these were all black tourists who were, who were there enjoying themselves and they had, you know, tasers pulled on them. They were tackled. They were, you know, they were roughhoused by cops. So, um, and in one instance, the an attorney said that, you know, he was just like a guy was just arrested for being there because they were uh, investigating a sexual assault and they heard noises left to investigate. And they basically just slammed a woman on the ground. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot. I, I encourage people to go read the whole story because it's, it's too much to get into in the podcast, but there's some serious allegations in this and, and between this and the FBI investigation, I think we're going to, I think there's still a lot that, that we'll learn in the future about this. Well, and with Joe Biden coming in as president, you might just see the justice department get back into the business of consent decrees with departments that are over the line. I'm a bit surprised this took place this summer, right? Because this has been the summer of attention paid to police abuse of black people. And, and yet, 
the, the, I guess the, the news didn't get to put in bay. Well, but also, you know, I, I, I would be cautious in saying that, that the attention drawn to police violence has not, I mean, the protests have resulted in police being more violent. You know, I mean, you see places like Portland, there's a lot of police who feel emboldened by what has been happening in this country over the past couple of years. And, and so, you know, you, you run into that attitude. I'm, and, and again, I'm not suggesting that that's the case of put in Bay. This, this, there may be an honest explanation for this, but my history of dealing with these issues shows that it, it's, there's some implicit bias here. There's some, you know, some of that stuff that is unconscious, but, but happens and, and it does affect black people in, in a disproportionate way. But again, we'll see. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The pandemic started with older people making up the majority of the cases in Ohio, but then younger people were the bulk of the cases over the summer. Laura Johnston, we seem to be swinging back. What's the trend now? Yes, we are swinging back up to about my age group. The Ohio Department of Health. Really that old. (laughs) (laughs) I say that on my birthday where I'm an old guy. (laughs) Joke's on me. Um, but the Department of Health data shows that residents between the ages of 30 and 59 accounted for 35.3% of the state coronavirus in September. That's jumped to 44.1% in October. The average age of someone testing positive has increased from 35 years old on September 1st to just under 45 years old. And actually, DeWine has pointed to this data as a reason hospitalization numbers might also be growing because when you're older, you're more likely to be actually sicker from the coronavirus. But as we've said so many times, we we don't have an ac- accurate contact tracing data. We don't know how these folks are getting it. But there's some idea that these people ages 30 to 59 are often working adults and parents with school-aged children. So some people have hypothesized that we, my age group, could be returning to work, the kids are going back to school, and we're spreading it through a lot of activity in our communities. That's interesting. Uh, uh, you know, and everybody's indoors, again, because it's getting cooler, not the last week, but before then and from now on. Uh, but it, it, it's interesting that it's skewing older. I, I think most people 10 years older than your age group are like hiding in their houses <laughs> waiting for the vaccine. <laughs> but, but, there, but there are people that have to go out. You know, my wife's a teacher. She's back in school. She's terrified every day that she's going to get this thing. And the, that spread is int- the, the trends are fascinating. And we've said this before and we'll say it again. We wish the public health officials, the county health departments, the state health department, would put just a little bit of effort into figuring out why it's spreading instead of, you know, standing up and begging us all to wear masks. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. It took Mike DeWine until Monday to acknowledge the election of Joe Biden as president. How long did it take that bold statesman, Senator Rob Portman? Jane Cahoon? (laughs) Well, I I guess you could call it an acknowledgement if you want. It it came on Tuesday afternoon, a a full week after the election and and three days after Joe Biden was declared the winner. Uh, Just like Governor Mike DeWine, Portman did not refer to Biden as the president-elect, though he merely said, right now, former Vice President Biden is leading in enough uh, states to win the presidency. Uh, he did not congratulate Biden as DeWine did. He he just noted the large turnout and President Trump's big victory in Ohio, noting he was a Trump supporter. But really, the whole point of his statement was to back Trump's continued legal challenges of the election. He said, President Trump has every right to insist that all legally cast ballots are counted. He also has the right to appropriate recounts and the right to go to court 
to resolve any questions about irregularities. And then, you know, the closest thing that that he said that could be interpreted as any pushback at all on Trump was uh, he said at the same time, the Trump campaign has an obligation to come forward with evidence to support any allegations of election fraud. All right, so let me ask you this. If I went to a library and I got every dictionary in the place and went through them, would I find any place where what he did is in the definition of leadership? <laughs> I think, I think you meant, oh. This is Chris Vernaski. I think you have to look under S uh, for spineless. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just where is the bold leadership that you need to lead this country? I mean, but Joe Biden won the election. Everybody knows that. And here is Rob Portman, a leading Republican senator who, with credibility in the Trump administration, has a chance to do the right thing, doesn't do it. I mean, it, this is just lame. Where is the well, leadership? Well, Gene, we wrote a we had a story uh, like what was it last week or a week before that said that he he might be worried about being challenged from the right, like from the farther right. Yes, him, right? yes, and good so, point. And so, you know, you see you see people like Pompeo who might be running for president, you know, making kind of a smirk, smirky, smug remark that he's going to honor the transition between uh, Donald Trump and Donald Trump. And, and then you have statements like this that are sort of, you know, I, I, I feel you like he's trying to play it was. safe. Yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of the whole thing. The whole tone of it is like. Don't want to offend anybody here like like the. Uh, no, I, 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 I think what it is, there were a lot of people saying, where the hell is Rob Portman? So he felt like, oh, I should say something. Let me put some words together that look like sentences and hopefully <laughs> that'll pass for a position. I, I Look, it's a stunning it's a it's a stunning absence of leadership. I mean, you're you're the U.S. senator, the Republican U.S. senator from Ohio, the Republican president, the leader of your party is doing reprehensible actions to get in the way of a transition to the next administration. You have a duty to do the right thing. And instead, words, words, words. And I put out a statement. I, I mean, you know, it'll be interesting to see if he gets challenged from the right. I'm certain he'll be challenged from the left. And it'll be interesting to see whether the voters of Ohio want that kind of vacuum in their U.S. senators. It's just, it's, a bit, it's kind of sad. He should have just stayed silent. It would have been better for him. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for this podcast. We're over time. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. 